And we're continuing in our series in the book of Revelation, and, uh, and you know, we've been working on this now for four weeks we've been uh, in the book of Revelation, and uh, the series is called Letters from Patmos, and in this series we're looking at these first three chapters of the book of Revelation. We're looking at these letters, these words that Jesus spoke to the church, to seven different churches there in Asia Minor, and uh, we believe that through these words, through these messages that Jesus gave to that church, that he has a word for us today in the church in America 2,000 years later. And if you've missed any of the messages, you can go check them out at myfamchurch.com or download the Fam Church app. You can listen to the podcast there. You can watch them there. This pod or the, this app, it's so handy, man. I would challenge everyone to get the app on your phone so that you can stay up to date on all the things going on. Like those of you over 50, we've got our Sam at Fam lunch tomorrow. Okay, and so bring some food. If you're over 50, we're going to hang out over there in our Family Life Center. We're going to eat some lunch, and we're going to have a good time. And so that's going on tomorrow, but get the app. Anyways, in last week's message, we saw that in the city of Ephesus, there were some good things going on in that church. God had some stuff happening in that church. God was moving. God was working. God was doing something. And, and God had some praise for the church. He told them, hey, man, you guys are doing great. You guys are doing wonderful. You've got all of these things going on. You're, you're working hard. You're persevering through persecution. Uh, uh, you were solid in your Bible knowledge, and you didn't let people come into your midst who's got, who had jacked up theology. You kept them out. You understood what it meant to follow me. But Jesus had one thing against the church in Ephesus. He had one thing. He had one word. And that one word, the one thing that he had against them was so powerful that Jesus says, if you don't get this thing fixed, if you don't get this thing turned around, I'm going to knock your lights out. Okay? I'm going to take you guys out. I'm going to take your church out. I'm going to wipe your church out. I mean, that's how intense this was. And so as we looked at it, what we saw last week was that, that Jesus told them, one, they'd gotten away from their first love, and two, they needed to do the things that they did at the beginning, that they did at first. And what we saw, what happened, what was going on there in that church in Ephesus was this. We saw that the church had gotten away from how they expressed their first love. And so how did we find out how they expressed their first love? We, we went to Acts 19 where it tells the story of the founding of the church in Ephesus. And, and what happened there was that the, the people just got so passionate about who Jesus was that they just went and told everybody. They were on the streets, they were in the stores, they were in their homes, they were everywhere, and they were telling everybody about who Jesus was. That was their first love, and we, we saw it just like when we fall in love, you know. Uh, we, we, we saw it like that where, you know, if we're in love with somebody, if we met this new guy or this new girl, it's all over Facebook, it's all over Instagram. You know, they can do no wrong, they never smell bad, their hair always looks nice, their face is always pretty. And so what we saw was that, you know what, in order to get back to the first love and do the things that they were doing at first, they needed to get back to having this passion for telling people about Jesus. And that's what they were called to do. And we saw that through their passion for telling people about Jesus, over 250,000 people in the province of Asia heard about who Jesus was. And for Fam Church, what that means for us is that we need to have that same kind of passion about Jesus. Man, we need to be out there, out in the streets, out in our neighborhoods, wherever people are gathered, just telling people about who Jesus is, about how he can change, how he can transform, how he can do something incredible in their life if they would just let them. And that will allow us as a church to impact this community 
and hey, there's not 250,000 people in Mulberry. There's like 25,000. So it's way easier to impact than they had back in Ephesus. But that's what we looked at last week, and so we're moving forward today to the second church to Jesus spoke to. And so if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, uh, I would invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 2. And uh, we are going to be looking at verses 8 through 11. If you don't know where Revelation's at and you got a Bible, just go to the very end of the Bible and start paging backwards until you see Revelation. If, if that still doesn't help or you don't have a Bible or whatever, it's going to be on the screen behind me so that you can follow along. And uh, this morning we're going to look at the words that Jesus addressed to the church in Smyrna. Now the fun thing about Smyrna is if you go to Google and you punch in Smyrna, there's Smyrna's all over. We've got several here in the United States. There's a, there's a Smyrna in Georgia. There's a Smyrna in Tennessee. There's a, there's a Smyrna in uh, Delaware. Uh, we even have a new Smyrna beach here in Florida. Anybody ever been to that beach? A few of you. I don't know, did you see in the news this week that uh, on Friday another kid was bit by a shark over there? It's a shark bite capital of the world. So if you're looking to get bit by a shark... New Smyrna Beach, it's the place to go. Just dangle your toes in the water, and at some point, your foot's going to get bit off. Amen? All right, everybody, head over to the beach today, get that foot bit off. But anyways, but the Smyrna we're talking about is not any of those Smyrnas. We're looking at uh, a Smyrna that was 35 miles up the coast from Ephesus in Asia Minor. And, and it was a very wealthy city, just like Ephesus was, but there was even more wealth. They talk about it as more like the Dubai of the ancient world. Money just came into this city. This city was incredibly wealthy, and in this city, Jesus had established a church. And actually, it's one of the... It's it's the only city of the seven cities that we're going to look at that's still inhabited today. The city is called Izmir today, and people still live there. But what's unusual about this city of Smyrna was that it had a large Jewish population. Okay, the Jews didn't travel far out of Jerusalem. I mean, there was Jews here and there across the Roman Empire, but they didn't travel very far. However, this city had a very large Jewish population in it. And, uh, and the thing was is that the Jews, just like the Christians, were targets of persecution in the Roman Empire. And the reason the Romans didn't like the Jews was because they believed in one God. The Romans were not big into believing in one God, and if you wouldn't worship the emperor... You were a problem for the Roman culture, okay? They just were like, man, what, what kind of weirdo are you that you won't worship the emperor? And so, and so the Jews wouldn't worship the emperor. They wouldn't burn incense to the emperor. And so the, the Romans persecuted the Jews just like they persecuted the Christians. Well, what happened was is that the, the Jews, in order to kind of help themselves out and to help the situation that they were in with being persecuted by the government, decided that they were going to go and they were going to turn in Christians wherever they found them. And one of the places that they did this in mass, in large quantities, was here in the city of Smyrna. And so Christians were in jeopardy in Smyrna of being turned in by the Jews, which of course created a problem because in the early church, the Jews and the Christians, Christians were actually seen, Christianity was an offshoot of Judaism. And so it was, it was considered something that was Jewish. And so the Christians wanted to be connected to the Jews because they saw themselves as being connected to God's people. And so, and so here we are, we've got this situation where there's tension in the church because you've got the Jews who are turning the Christians over. The Christians, they want to be part of the Jewish culture because they see themselves as the fulfillment of the Old Testament through Jesus. And so it creates tension. And so with that, let's read Revelation 2, 8 through verse 11, and this is what it says. It says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. 
I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and who are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid for what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. So this letter, like all others in this section, uh, as we talked about, opens up with a character trait of Jesus. And so we've got this snapshot, we've got this picture of who Jesus is, and the character trait that Jesus introduces here is the one who is dead but has come back to life. And, and we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, and, and basically what Jesus was telling the church was, he was saying, hey, look, death, it's one of the things that you have not learned to defeat as human beings. I mean, we looked at some people who've tried to defeat death, like Ted Williams and his head being frozen out in Arizona, and he's hoping that someday they can defrost his head and stick it on a body, and Ted Williams will come back to life. But as of yet, we've not defeated death. And Jesus was saying, look, I know you've got these problems. I know you've got these issues. You've got this crazy stuff going on, but guess what? I've defeated death. And if I can beat the thing you can't beat, guess what? I can take care of any other problem, situation, or issue that you have in your life. And that's why Jesus revealed this character trait to the church was to give them hope. Hope that Jesus, because he conquered death, can conquer anything that they're going through. And that's the word that they needed. And so when you get to the body of the letter, the thing that stood out to me was that there was no rebuke from Jesus in this letter. In last week's letter in Ephesus, Jesus rebuked them for what they did. But there was no rebuke here. However, uh, and Smyrna was one of two churches in this section of Revelation, the other being Philadelphia, that Jesus does not reprimand. Instead, Jesus has only good things to say about the church. They're afflicted, they're poor, they're persecuted, and yet they're still standing tall. But what's also interesting about this church and the church in Philadelphia, the two that uh, Jesus doesn't have anything negative to say about, is that they are the smallest and least influential of the seven churches found here in the book of Revelation. See, there were the other five churches were larger. The other five churches were making a much bigger impact. The other five churches were doing much more things that we would look at and we would say, man, that's awesome. Man, that's crazy. Look at what God is doing there. But Smyrna was not doing that. And it makes it interesting because Jesus said, Jesus had nothing against them. And it kind of smacks in the face of what we think of here in the United States as what does successful look like? You know, we look at success and we think, well, if it's growing, bigger is better. If things are getting larger, if things are moving forward, if that thing is pumping, then God must be pleased with what's going on there. God must be honoring them for the great things that they are doing. But you know what? This shows us that that's not always the case. Sometimes the church is doing what God wants it to do, is living the way that Jesus had called it to, and yet it still stays small. I know that's not something we like to or want to hear. It's not something I like or want to hear at all because, uh, you know, you just want to be successful and you want to do things. And, but we've got this idea in our head of God, don't we? 
that if we're doing the right things, if we're doing things the way God wants them to be done, then God's going to bless us by making things better for us, right? You know, if I'm doing Christianity right, you know, then God is going to grow my ministry. If I'm doing Jesus right, then God is going to grow the church. If I am doing things right, then I am going to be prosperous. If I am doing things right, everything's going to be amazing. But you know what? There are times that we can do everything right, and it still is not going to go well with us and our life. I mean, look at what we have here in the text. This church was doing everything right, and yet they were afflicted. They're doing everything right, and they're still in poverty. They're doing everything right, and yet people are being slandered in the community and thrown in jail. It's a church that's doing everything right. And Jesus says, get ready, because you're going to suffer more for doing everything right. And I think most of us, if we were to be honest, we'd say, man, that really bothers me. That really bothers me. Because that's not how I want God to be. I want God to be the God where, man, if I'm praying a lot, if I'm spending my time reading my Bible, if I'm doing everything that I can to avoid sin in my life, if I'm sacrificially giving, if I'm involved in ministry, if I'm doing all of these things, then, then God is going to make sure that I don't have any big problems in my life. And that's the kind of picture we have of God, and that's the kind of God that we desire and we want to serve. And this belief has caused many people to have their faith, their belief in God, lay in ruins because God doesn't come through and do this for them. Man, I've heard story after story of people who have said, you know what, how could a loving God allow this to happen to me? How could a loving God allow me to go through this because I've been faithful to him, he should be faithful to me. It's been a story after story. I wanna tell you the story of a missionary his name is David Flood, or was David Flood. He was from Sweden, and him and his wife, they decided that God had called them to West Africa, to the area where we're doing our Kids for Coins, where the Girls Ministries is doing their Kids for Coins project. And so him and his wife packed up their two-year-old son, and they moved to West Africa. They got there to the mission station. How they used to do missions was they had a mission station where all the Western missionaries would stay at, and then they would kind of go out and do ministry and come back to the station. Well, what this family decided was that's not how they wanted to reach this, this area. They wanted to go out into the jungles, into the mountains, and have contact with people who have never heard the gospel. And so what they did was they took their, their little son and, and, and the husband and wife, and they teamed up with another pair of missionaries, and they headed out into the jungle. They found this village where there had never been a missionary, where they had never seen a white man, and they showed up. And they decided, this is where God has called us. This is where we're going to do ministry. And as they got to the village, the village chief would not allow them to come in. The village chief was concerned that having white men in their camp, white women in their camp, was going to cause the local gods to get mad. And so he told them they couldn't enter the city. And so here's what they did. 
they went a half a mile down the road and they established their own little settlement. This families, these two families, they built mud huts and they started to live. But the chief wouldn't let them have contact with the people. He allowed one little boy to come to them to sell them eggs and chickens so that they had food. He'd come twice a week. And this lady, Sevilla, she decided that she was going to, if this was the one person God was going to send her, she was going to tell her about Jesus. And so she starts talking to this young boy and starts telling him about Jesus. She didn't even know if he could speak English. She just started talking to him and talking to him and talking to him and ministering him. Twice a week, he would come out and he would sell the eggs and chicken. And twice a week, he would talk to her. Well, pretty soon, Sevilla became pregnant. But bouts of malaria started to hit the camp. It became too much for the other missionary family and they said, we've got to go back to the base. We're getting sick. We're, we're having too much illness. And so they headed back. And so it was this husband and wife, their son, and they're pregnant. And the, and the wife was pregnant, left out in the jungles. And this same pattern continued. They prayed and prayed and God did nothing. Finally, it came time for Sevilla to give birth. She gave birth to a baby girl, but the bouts of malaria had taken their toll on her body. And so the process of giving birth just caused her to eventually, 17 days later, die. David, the missionary, looked at his wife, her dead body laying there, looked up at God, said, God, how could you do this to me? My family came to this jungle sacrificed everything to serve you so that people could hear about me. And this is what you do to me. He dug a shallow grave, made a white cross, wrote his wife's name on it, buried his wife, took his daughter and son, and left the jungle. He got back to the mission station. He told the missionaries he has no way to care for this daughter. He gave his daughter away, took his son, and headed back to Sweden and told people to never mention God's name to him again. God had let him down and he was done. And see, too often, that's what happens in our life when something tragic happens, when we give it all for God, when we lay it out on the line. He lived the rest of his life a bitter and angry person because he did what God told him to do. But the expectation that he had from God was not met. He expected God to keep his wife alive. He expected God to bless his ministry. He expected God to do something supernatural in those jungles in Africa. But it didn't happen that way. Instead of God bringing him good things, all it brought to him was tragedy. And it left him bitter and it left him angry. But here's the deal. In these words that Jesus spoke to the church in Smyrna, he let us know, look, just because you're doing it right doesn't mean everything's going to go your way. There may be times in your life when you do exactly what God says and everything is still going to crumble to pieces around you. 
And I know this isn't a popular message in America, and if we put this out there for everyone to see, it's not going to draw people to our church because they want to hear that as long as you do things right, God's going to bless you. He's going to give you a nice house. He's going to give you a nice car. He's going to give you a great spouse. He's going to give you amazing children, and everything is going to be wonderful. Well, that's not the way it works. We can do everything right when it comes to Jesus and still have terrible things happen in our life. We can follow his voice exactly, we can sacrifice everything, and it may not lead to anything for us but hurt, pain, persecution, and suffering. But even in this letter to Smyrna, not only was the persecution, pain, and suffering coming from outside of the church, There was pain and suffering coming from inside of the church as well because he says there in one of the verses he talks about he knows the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not but are a synagogue of Satan. What's Jesus trying to communicate there? Well, the Jews, they're God's chosen people. And as I said in the intro, the Christians at the time saw themselves as true Jews. So those who followed Jesus considered themselves Jewish. And what Jesus is telling them, he's saying, look, There's going to be some people in your midst, in your circle, that are part of the church that are going to send you to jail. How do you like the sound of that? Not because you did something like killed somebody, but because you did something like talk about Jesus. That's what was going on in this church. The church was, there was people who were literally going to the authorities and saying, look, I know this person's a Christian. I know this person's talking about Jesus and you may want to arrest them. And people were getting arrested because the people, other people who they thought were believers, who they thought were followers of Jesus, were turning them in and causing pain and suffering in their lives. The people that they thought should be their biggest supporters and source of strength were the ones who turned on them. Those were the ones who said they were God's people. They're the ones who caused all kinds of suffering in their life. And this is another one that I've heard so many times from so many people is that they talk about what's happened to them in the church. And you say to them, hey, what's up with your church? What's up with church? What's up with your relationship with Jesus? And they say, I'm never going back to a church again in my life. Why? Because somebody in the church hurt me. A pastor did something to me. A leader in the church said something about me. Something happened. And I've got this pain in my life, and I'm going to hold on to it and allow it to keep me from what God has for me. It's the pain. It's the, it's the things that we face, but Jesus says, you know what? In all of this, we need to remain faithful because there's a victor's crown that awaits us at the end of this. And in order to get that crown of life, we have to be able to look past what we are currently going through, what is currently happening to us, and see to the end, see to the finish line. Let me finish the story of David Flood. The daughter that was born to him was eventually given to missionaries from the United States. These missionaries, they came back over and they decided that they weren't going to take the risk of going back into the country because this child wasn't legally theirs and they wanted to keep this child who they'd named Aggie as their kid. So they moved to Sioux Falls, South Dakota and they planted a church. 
Aggie grew up in Sioux Falls. Well, she ended up moving uh, to, uh, to Minneapolis to go to North Central Bible College because she wanted to get training for ministry. She met a man there. His name was Duane. They got married. And he became the president of Northwest College, which is an Assembly of God college out in the Seattle area. Well, in the Seattle area, there's a large Scandinavian population. And none of her past had been kept from her. Aggie knew the whole story of how she ended up with this family that she was with. She knew about her parents. She knew about the mission stuff. Well, one day she goes out to her mail, and there's this, there's this magazine in there, and it's all in Swedish. She doesn't know Swedish. She pulls it out, and she starts paging through it, looking at the pictures. One of the pictures... It's a white cross, and it says Sevilla Flood across it. Big picture on the page. She's like, oh my gosh, that's my mother. And so she took this magazine, and she went to somebody who she knew, knew Swedish, and could translate this article for her. She handed the article to this person, and he said, you know what this says? It says, it tells the story of a missionary named Sevilla Flood who came to Africa to this small village and told one little boy about Jesus. And as that little boy got older, he'd heard what she had said to her when she was ministering to him. And he gave his life to Jesus. And as the boy got older, he built a school in his town. He built a Christian school in his little village, and he started ministering to all the kids. Well, pretty soon, all of the kids in the village were Christians. The, the, the kids took what they were learning at school home to their parents. And pretty soon, all of the adults in the village were Christian, even the chief who tried to keep them out of the village. She was blown away by this. She's like, parent's life wasn't in vain. And so she knew she had to find her dad. She went to Sweden and started looking around, found him living in a tenement in Stockholm. He'd spent his years as an alcoholic. His family hated him. He was angry. He was bitter. Everything. He had all of this stuff in his life. He was 73 years old. He was suffering with multiple diseases. He was just living in this one little room, drinking himself to death. He found, she found her brother David, and her brothers told him where their father was at, but he said, don't mention God to him. He'll go in a rage. She finds her dad, walks into the room, and says, hey, dad, it's Ina. And he starts to cry. And he said, I'm so sorry for leaving you on the mission field. And she said, it's okay, God took care of me. With those words, his back stiffened, his tears stopped, and he got up and he screamed in her face, never mention God's name to me again. And she said, you know what? I got a story to tell you. Because not only did 600 people in their village give their life to Christ, but Sevilla Flood was considered the saint of that area because there were now 110,000 believers in their country. And they all looked to her as the one who brought the gospel. 
the dad began to weep. He broke and he committed his life again to Jesus. See, this is the thing. Yes, there's pain. Yes, there's tragedy. Yes, there's hurt out there. But God knows what he's doing with that pain and that hurt. God knows what he's doing when he brings us into situations where things don't go according to our plan. When things don't go according to how we see them. He had a plan to use this family to reach the nation of Zaire with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that plan involved Sevilla Flood giving her life. But see, the dad couldn't see the victor's crown. He couldn't see the end of the race. He was caught up in the circumstances that were right there in front of him. We can't get caught up in what's right here in front of us. We have got to think long-term, victor's crown, end of the race, in every situation, in every circumstance that we find ourselves in in life. Because that's ultimately what matters. If you focus on the here and now, you're never going to make it to the end. In the past, I've done some long-distance running. And when I was going to be running 15 miles, if I had focused on, because I have headphones on when I'm running that tell me my, my pace, that tell me everything as I am running. And so if I was focusing on, oh man, one mile, this sucks, my legs hurt. Oh, two miles. Oh, I'm never going to make it. No, the thought in my mind always has to be when the number 15 arrives, then I can start thinking about those things. I can't think about the pain in my legs. I can't think about the shortness of breath. I've got to look to the long term, to the end of the race. And that's what Jesus is telling the church in Smyrna here. Don't look to the short term. Look to the long term because I have got a crown for you that you will not believe. Keep our focus on the long term. Keep our focus on the end of the road. Keep our focus on the crown that awaits us from God. Because if we finish the race, if we complete the task, he's got that waiting for us.